Well, please turn in your Bibles to John 2. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, starting with verse 12. With verse 12. If you're a guest here this morning, thank you so much for being here with us. If you picked up a blue Bible, that's page 887. If you're unfamiliar with your Bible, the, the Gospel of John is the fourth book of the New Testament. We've been working verse by verse through this now for a bit. My name is Stuart McRae. I have the joy of serving on staff here as one of the pastors, and it's a joy to bring you God's word this morning. John 2, starting with verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and the disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Last week, we read of the wedding at Cana where Jesus turned the water into wine. And this was a miracle sign, as the text says, that manifested his glory. This account is an endearing image of Jesus, creatively caring for and providing the needs of his people. And in Jewish thought, wine is a symbol of joy and celebration. It's a, it's a symbol of either having or not having God's blessing. And so at a high level, Jesus turning the water into wine was to point to him as the Messiah who would restore the blessings and joy of the Lord to God's people. Jesus as the messianic bringer of God's joy is something that's picked up later in John chapter 16 when Jesus tells his disciples that that he'll die, he'll leave them, and they'll be sorrowful. But, and I quote, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. This is a sure promise from the Messiah that there will be eternal joy for everyone who believes in his name because of his death and resurrection. And we love this image of Jesus, and and rightfully so. Jesus is the Messiah that brings God's eternal joy. But Jesus is also the Messiah who brings God's judgment. This is where our text is, at least in part, going this morning with the cleansing of the temple. We need both of these images of Jesus if we're to fully understand who he is and what he's come to do, as both are central to the message of the gospel. The, The crux of our passage is whether or not Jesus has the authority to bring God's judgment. 
the questioning and establishing of Jesus' authority is something that John's gospel, as well as the other gospels, deals with a lot. Jesus' authority is questioned still today. And so establishing Jesus' authority is paramount if we're to believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And, and that's the whole point of the Gospel of John, to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you might have eternal life. And this passage is a pointer to Jesus' messianic authority. The main point of our passage is this. Jesus, the promised Messiah, has authority to cleanse the earthly temple because he supersedes the temple by providing pure access to God through his death and resurrection. With verse 12 serving as a transition verse, we're gonna really be looking at verses 13 through 22 this morning, and we're gonna break this into two, two parts, two points, verses 13 through 17, and then 18 through 22. And what we'll see unfold and become clear by the end is that Jesus, the promised Messiah, has authority to cleanse the earthly temple because he supersedes the temple by providing pure access to God through his death and resurrection. Well, let's get going. Follow along with me as I reread verses 13 through 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The point of these verses is that Jesus, the promised Messiah, with zeal for his father's house, cleanses the earthly temple. Now we see the setting and the problem in verses 13 through 14, and we're told that this account occurred near the time of the Passover up at the Jerusalem temple. The Jewish Passover was the most important Jewish festival, and in total, John mentions the Passover three times. As you might recall, the Passover commemorated God's supernatural deliverance of the Jews from Pharaoh and Egypt. It was here that God passed over the firstborn of the homes whose doorposts had been marked with the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Now, all adult males went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover because it was there in Jerusalem that the main temple of worship was found. The temple was a, a temporary institution given by God as God's gift to his people. It's seen in the desert, post the exodus, as the tent of meeting. And then it is seen as the tabernacle, both enabled for portability because God's people were nomads at that point. And then finally as the temple, a permanent fixture. The temple was the place where God's glory was found amongst his people. It was the place for the people of God to encounter God and to worship God and to pray to God. The temple was also a place of confession and contrition, a place of brokenness 
as it was the only place where atoning sacrifices for sin were made. The temple was a place of receiving the affirmation of God's forgiveness and experiencing God's mercy. Now the Greek word that John uses here in verse 14 for temple generally refers to the area surrounding the temple. That is in distinction from the the temple building proper. Commentators agree that in this present instance, this probably refers to the outermost court, the court of the Gentiles. And you'll see that on the screen. You see, Gentiles and non-purified Jews were prohibited from entering into the inner courts of the temple, but were welcome to come into the outermost court to worship God. So Jesus, in accordance with observing the Passover, is joyfully going up to Jerusalem and into the temple to worship God. But there's a problem. Instead of finding worshipers of holy God, he finds two things that infuriate him. Those who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now everyone was required to offer sacrifice of an animal without spot or blemish at the Passover. Pilgrims who came from afar found it was inconvenient and largely impractical to bring their own animal on a long journey and keep it spotless. And so the sale of these sacrificial animals was a, was a service to the pilgrims and were conveniently available for purchase in the court of the Gentiles. Further, these pilgrims needed to have their foreign currency exchanged for local currency due to the temple tax. Well, Jesus' reaction to what he saw was righteous indignation. And we know what Jesus famously does. Verse 15, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Why did Jesus exhibit such a drastic display of righteous indignation? Well, in the other temple cleansing accounts, it's clear that it's due to the unethical business practices. We, we read in those other temple cleansing accounts, it is written, my father's house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And Jesus was nailing those folks because there was corruption and there was financial exploitation being taken place of the pilgrims who were coming to worship God in the Passover. Yet, here in our passage, Jesus' righteous indignation towards these folks is due to their mere presence in the court of the Gentiles, thus defiling the pure worship of holy God. How dare you turn my father's house into a house of trade? This was a sacred space, a reverent space. The only space for the Gentiles to come and worship holy God before his presence, and they didn't have access to do so. And, and if there was some space, that space was now filled with the irreverence and defilement of commerce. Listen to how D.A. Carson describes the situation. Instead of solemn dignity, the murmur of prayer, there is a bellowing of cattle 
and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. In Isaiah 56, 7, the Lord says, My house, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. God's house was to be a house of prayer for all peoples, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But in effectively taking away the space for the Gentiles to worship God, God's house of prayer was being replaced through commerce by religious arrogance and ethnic superiority. In other words, defilement. And listen, to defile the temple is to defile the very God in whom the temple represents. And Jesus, with great zeal and passion for holy God and the pure worship of God, was furious. In Zechariah 14, 21, we read, and there shall no longer be merchants in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. In Malachi 3, 1 through 3, we read, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. We cannot miss that Jesus, in fulfillment of passages like these, is acting as God's messianic prophet. And the message the Messiah brings here is one of judgment, unleashed against those who defile the pure worship of God. The temple of God is unclean, and God in the person of Jesus has entered into his temple, declares judgment against the uncleanness, and then cleanses the, the, the temple of its defilement, restoring pure worship of holy God once again. This is a breathtaking scene. What's outstanding here is that the Messiah's judgment leads to blessing for the Gentiles. When the Messiah cleared the court of the Gentiles, it, it opened up access for them to begin to once again come in and worship holy God. That's the blessing of God. Well, in witnessing Jesus' actions, Jesus' disciples are reminded of Psalm 69, 9, verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. You see, in taking up his role as narrator, John's interjection serves as an interpretive grid through which we, the reader, are to understand Jesus' actions. Jesus, as the new and better David, was consumed with zeal for the Lord's house. The scriptures are yet again fulfilled in what Jesus did. 
the great Bible commentator Leon Morris says, we should not miss the way this incident fits in with John's aim of showing Jesus to be the Messiah. All his actions imply a special relationship with God. They proceed from his messianic vocation. At the heart of the Messiah's judgment against the uncleanness in the temple was a pure, passionate zeal for holy God. Jesus, the promised Messiah with zeal for his father's house, cleanses the earthly temple. He cleanses it from the defilement of impure worship so that peoples from all nations can come in and worship holy God. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we too are called to share in the Messiah's zeal for his all-consuming passion for God and the worship of God. You, you see, the, the zeal of the, the merchants and the money changers was not for God, nor was it for others created in the image of God. Their, their zeal was for profit. That's what they were worshiping. And, and the judgment from the Messiah was not simply that they had forgotten about God, but that in their zealous worship for profit, they'd actually turned to another God. The God of commerce, the God of consumerism, the God of materialism, the God of self and personal gain. And in so doing, in the temple of God, they were defiling the pure worship of God and even prohibiting the nations from coming in and worshiping God in an unhindered way. And Jesus cleansed the temple of their defilement, restoring pure worship of holy God once again. Now, before we start comparing ourselves to them, we must admit that in comparison to the perfect zeal of the Messiah for God's glory, we fall infinitely short. Our passion for God is not perfect either. We, we too have misplaced zeal and imperfect worship of God. We too can be consumed with things other than God and frankly the worship of false gods of our own creation. We know this to be true because each and every believer still struggles with leftover and dwelling sin. Oh believer in Christ, what we need is what only the Messiah can do. We need the temple of our hearts to be cleansed from all the leftover indwelling sin that affects our worship of holy God. Let me be clear so there's no mixed message. What we're talking about here is sanctification, the, the process whereby we are transformed more and more into the image of Christ. We are not talking about justification here. That, that is the instantaneous legal act of God where when one puts their faith in Christ, God thinks of their sins as forgiven, Christ's righteousness as being credited to their account, and because of those things, then God declaring 
person who has faith in Christ to be right before him, to stand innocent. I'm talking about sanctification here, where we are becoming what we have already been declared to be. Salvation does cleanse us, and yet the Messiah is eager to clean out the leftover indwelling sin of irreverence in the temple of our hearts from the things that block the intimacy of our fellowship with him. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, and he does this through sweet gifts of confession and ongoing repentance and things like crying out for more grace for change and submission to his spirit who brings about change. And so some questions. Is there something that's blocking the intimacy of your fellowship with God? Is there something you're more consumed with other than God and the things of God? These are some questions that I've been considering myself as I've been working through this text and I would encourage you to do the same. here's the good news. God is eager to grant repentance and grace for change. And the Messiah is eager to remove these things and in their place fill our hearts with new affections and new passions for God. Jesus the Messiah with zeal for his father's house cleanses the earthly temple. He cleanses it from the defilement of impure worship so that peoples from all nations can come and worship holy God. Well, Jesus' display of his messianic authority leads to a conflict between he and the Jewish leaders. Follow along with me as I reread 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed in the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The point of these verses is Jesus, the promised Messiah, has authority to cleanse the earthly temple because he supersedes the temple. The, the, the psalm that came to the disciples' mind, Psalm 69, 9, not only gives us an interpretive grid through which we were to understand Jesus' actions, but it also serves as an interpretive grid to understand Jesus' conflict with the Jewish leaders. The, the psalmist in Psalm 69 declares in verse 7 that on, that on account of God, Dishonor or shame has covered my face. And in verse 8 he states, I have become a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. Why? The answer is in verse 9, the one that we have read, which says, for or because zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. One commentator is very helpful when he says, the emphasis on the unique relation to God 
and the distance between his mother's offspring connects directly to how Jesus is depicted thus far in the gospel. David is declaring that the people are reviling God by their worship. Sound familiar? And his public protest has caused them to begin to revile him as well. The people do not understand the protest, and they attack David for suggesting that they are attacking Yahweh, or because they infer admission of personal sin. So with the context of 69.9 in view, we're, we're, we're better prepared now to see Jesus' encounter with the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders are the revilers who both revile God and will shame Jesus. The Jews in verse 18 are the religious leaders that, that we were first introduced to back in chapter 119. And they're the frequent opponents of Jesus. And here, they're the temple authorities. It's important to note that the Jewish leaders were not so much disputing the righteous act, or the righteousness of what Jesus did, but rather if he had authority to do it at all. Their question in verse 18 was one of authority. In other words, they ask, if God gave you messianic authority to do this, show us a miracle, a miraculous sign to prove it. The irony in this line of questioning is that Jesus had just given one in cleansing the temple. But true to the Jews' spiritual blindness, they missed the sign that had just been performed before their very eyes. Well, Jesus answers them, verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. This is a conditionally based sign, meaning it's conditionally dependent on the temple, uh, destruction of the temple, and fulfilled or rebuilt three days later. Uh, fulfilled when rebuilt three days later. Now, what's interesting here is that the Greek word for temple used here is different than the Greek word for temple used in verse 14. If you'll recall, the Greek word used for temple in verse 14 generally refers to the area surrounding the temple. That is, in distinction to the temple building proper. However, the Greek word used for temple here in verse 19 is primarily used to denote the dwelling place of God. It can be used comprehensively to refer to the whole temple precinct, but it does so with emphasis on dwelling, not physical structure. We know, and we'll get there, that Jesus obviously meant something different than how the Jews took it. But nevertheless, the Jews took it in a valid way. In their mind, Jesus was alluding to the temple that stood before them when they said in verse 20, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? The dialogue ends there. Verses 21 through 22 are more narrative by John. And although John will explain that Jesus was referring to his body in his bodily resurrection, and we'll get there, we must not miss that in this moment, Jesus lost the argument. Jesus lost the argument for whether or not he had the authority to cleanse the temple. You see the rhetorical question by the Jews in verse 20, and the absence of a response by Jesus was 
are fully intended to signify that Jesus lost the challenge. What's more, John reveals to us in verse 22 that Jesus' own disciples don't believe him in the moment. Okay, I want to close the gap from when we started these particular verses, 18 through 22, where we discussed the context of 69.9, Psalm 69.9. There we saw the Lord's anointed experienced shame from his own people for having zeal for God's glory being protected and upheld. All right, bear with me. Pay close attention. There are massive gospel implications with what we're reading and what we're about to discuss. And frankly, if we're gonna understand this account rightly and then appreciate the rest of this gospel narrative of John, we need to get this. To claim authority in the Jewish culture was to claim honor. And so to be challenged on one's authority and lose was to be shamed and experience shame. There's basically two ways to lose this type of honor-shame contest. First, one responds with an unsatisfactory answer and is shut down by the acknowledged authorities. Or two, one does not have any answer when their claimed authority is challenged. This passage is not the only place we see this happening. The, the, the Jewish leaders question Jesus' authority often. And, and most of us are very, very familiar with these passages. We probably just haven't thought about it in this way. Let me, let me show you one. Luke 13, 10 through 17 records one of these honor-shame contests. And, and this is the account of the woman with the disabling spirit. It's a Sabbath when Jesus has this encounter with this woman, and he heals her right there in one of the synagogues in front of everyone. Well, the ruler of the synagogue was indignant because Jesus healed her on the Sabbath. And he says to all of the people, starting with Luke 13, 14, and you'll see it on the screen, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Listen closely. And he said these things, and all of his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were being done by him. He healed this woman. And they challenged his authority. It's not right to do, it's the Sabbath. Well, this is a common argumentation that we see in the Gospels that Jesus uses. He substantiates his authorities. The so-called temple authorities have no response. All his adversaries were put to shame. This is a normal outcome for the honor-shame contest with Jesus and the Jewish leaders. We are accustomed to seeing Jesus win and then experience honor and the Jewish leaders lose and experience shame. However, in our text this morning, we see something very unique in the Gospels. Jesus experiences the shame of the loss. Jesus claims authority and honor by demonstrating authority. 
He's then confronted by the acknowledged authorities to prove that he has authority to do what he did. Jesus gives an answer to substantiate that authority, but his response is found unsatisfactory, and he's shut down by the acknowledged authorities. John twice confirms that Jesus lost this honor-shame contest. Everyone knew it. The Jewish leaders rejected his answer. The crowd witnessed it. But what's maybe more, his own disciples didn't believe him either, not until after the resurrection. Although verse 20 is the end of the dialogue between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, John really cares for our soul and doesn't conclude this account there but provides us with the necessary unseen insight that no one else saw. Verse 21, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. The insight that John provides has massive theological significance. Although Jesus lost and experienced the shame in the moment, John lets us know that Jesus was not referring to the Jerusalem temple, but the temple of his body where God was dwelling. This statement by John serves as a defense for Jesus' honor, and in the end, the sign proved to the Jewish leaders, the sign that Jesus provided to the Jewish leaders proved true. The great irony is that in the end, the very Jewish leaders that thought that Jesus' statements were crazy were the same people who would make it a reality when they destroyed his body on the cross. And hear this. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he has and will ultimately finally put to shame all of God's enemies and the enemies of God's people to include most assuredly Satan, sin, and death. Of course, in destroying the temple of Jesus' body, the Jewish leaders were making the physical temple in Jerusalem obsolete. The temple of Jesus' body through his death and resurrection became the only true temple, the only true space to worship holy God. What John is saying and what we must come away with is that Jesus' death and resurrection are actually the way to now find access to God. In other words... You cannot find access to God through physical structures, through temples, through a particular religious space or sanctuary. The, the only way to God is through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. It took till after Jesus' resurrection, but his disciples did come around. The text says they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken the, the scripture in view here is Psalm 69, 9. And, and the words of Jesus that are in view here are the ones found in verse 19. You see, with these last verses, John is validating Jesus' messianic authority over the temple. Jesus, the promised Messiah, had authority to cleanse the earthly temple because he supersedes the temple. Okay. Here's the gospel implication that I teased earlier. Jesus lost and experienced the shame. 
to make such a statement sounds antithetical to the good news of the gospel until we realize that Jesus lost is the story of the gospel. Jesus lost is the good news for sinners like you and me. We can too, all too easily become like the Jews or the Pharisees or the disciples who think Jesus is their king according to their standards. No. Jesus lost. It could be no other way. Jesus was shamed in his temple, at his Passover, in his city, by Jewish leaders who should be serving and honoring him by his own creation. Jesus received the shame. This is the good news of the gospel. This is God in the person of Jesus Christ declaring through Psalm 69 that shame covers my face and the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. In Jesus, God entered his corrupt and defiled temple, declared it unclean, and received its shame. This is the very thing he should not have done in light of his holiness, could not have done, but he did. This is the gospel. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. Hebrews 12, 2. To live in the good of the gospel is to celebrate shame. Hold fast to what Jesus lost, which is our gain. You see, we, we too were all once the revilers who shamed Jesus. And yet through faith in his death and resurrection, Jesus takes our shame and gives us his honor. His pure, undefiled righteousness. Jesus took the shame. But as believers in Christ, we can still struggle with shame, can't we? Biblical counselor Ed Welch says, shame controls far too many of us, worthless, inferior, rejected, weak, humiliated, failure. It all adds up to wishing that we could get away from others and hide. We know what shame feels like. The way out, however, is harder to find. Time doesn't help. Neither does confession because shame is just as often from what others do to you as it is from what you have done yourself. But the Bible is about shame from start to finish. And if we are willing, God's beautiful words break through. Look at Jesus through the lens of shame, he says. God cares for the shamed. Through Jesus, you can find freedom and shame can be turned into joy. Do you struggle or have you struggled with shame? Let me give you some hope for healing. Jesus took the shame of the loss. And through the gospel, Jesus is offering to take our shame as well. Even believers in Christ who know that Jesus took their shame in some ultimate sense can still struggle with shame. 
Now, guilt over sin can give way to sinful shame in that we become more concerned by people seeing our weaknesses and faults than we are about God seeing our sins. But depression could say it either way. Shame is also something that can be experienced due to the sin of others. And it's because of the fall. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ takes our shame. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus has taken our shame and wants to take our shame and replace it with joy, everlasting. Jesus is calling us to come out from the darkness and hide in his purifying light. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus takes our shame and gives us his honor. Finally, if you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, what we've been talking about here is the gospel. Where through faith in Christ, Jesus takes the shame of our sin and dies the death that it requires on the cross. And through faith in Christ, we are gifted his pure, righteous, holiness, The good news of the gospel is that we can have a right relationship with the holy God of this universe by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. I invite you, today's the day. Pastor Doug, I, we, we'd love to be able to talk with you about those things if you have questions. Well, Jesus, the promised Messiah, had authority to cleanse the earthly temple because he supersedes the temple. And he superseded the temple through his death and resurrection. Well, we started this sermon off by saying that we need both images of Jesus, both from last week as Jesus being the, the, the messianic bringer of God's joy, but we also need the image of Jesus in our text too, God's messianic bringer of judgment. Jesus has the authority to do so Jesus' messianic authority to carry out the calling of the Messiah is a huge deal in the Gospels. And often we see Jesus displaying his authority and then almost immediately having that authority challenged. And what we saw this morning is unique. Jesus came into his temple with messianic authority, judged it as unclean, and so cleansed it from its irreverence and defilement. But because the Jewish leaders missed what Jesus was talking about, Jesus was deemed to not have the authority he claimed to have and experience the shame of the loss. Thankfully, John brought the, the end of the gospel account to the beginning. Although Jesus would experience the shame of the loss, the greatest loss of all when his body would be unjustly torn down and killed three days later he rose bodily from the grave and experienced the honor he so rightly deserves Jesus will in the end ultimately experience the honor from all peoples when all peoples bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ Philippians 2, 9-11 says, God has highly exalted Jesus 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was shown to have the authority he claimed because in the end, his sign proved true. And what's more, he himself actually superseded the temple. At the end of the Bible, the very John who wrote this gospel tells us in Revelation 21, 22, that in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is our temple access to holy God. And we're to read the, the whole gospel of John through this lens. This is why this account is here and why John brings the end of his gospel to the beginning. So we would see this at the front and read all of John through the lens of Jesus' messianic authority over the temple. That's clear in the end what John is telling us. Jesus, the promised Messiah, has authority to cleanse the earthly temple because he supersedes the temple by providing pure access to God through his death and resurrection. And so the call then for us, as it will be throughout the Gospel of John, is to believe, to believe. Whether it's the first time or whether it's the, the ongoing, believe. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that we can have life by believing in his name. Let's pray. Uh, we are thankful, God, that in your kindness, you would provide us this text. This text, so that we could know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he has all authority, and that through him we have access to you. What great news. Now, Father, would we worship you, worship you for all that you are and all that you have done in sending your only son to live perfectly, sinlessly, to die on the cross and experience the shame of the loss, but to be risen again and experience triumph. And by faith in him and our union with him, we can experience his triumph as well. Give us help to live in the good of this text. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.